Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. This week, the president addresses the nation. Democracy endures only if, only if, we the people accept the results of free and fair elections. Only if we the people see politics not as total war, but mediation of our differences. We'll have a breakdown of what he said and what it means for the midterms. Plus, an in-depth look at how the states are no longer the laboratories of democracy, but rather the front lines for national parties and national debate. And remembering Mikhail Gorbachev, the last leader of the Soviet Union, dies at 91. All of that coming up this hour, but we begin with Thursday's primetime presidential address. Our Tom Hutler has more. I ran for president because I believe we're in a battle for the soul of this nation. I still believe that to be true. I believe the soul is the breath, the life, and the essence of who we are. That was President Biden making his Soul of the Nation speech from Philadelphia's Independence Hall last night. The president calling on Americans to reject Make America Great Again Republicans. And with more on the president's speech, I'm joined by ABC's Jay O'Brien in Washington. Jay, thanks for your time. What were the key points of that speech last night? Well, this was an obviously political speech. The undertones of it were very political. The White House had built it, as you said, it was a battle for the soul of the nation is what the White House said the theme was. And where the president took that was his argument to the American people was that democracy is under threat by what he calls so-called MAGA Republicans. And this is a president, by the by, who rarely invokes the name of his predecessor, rarely talks about former President Donald Trump, or at least rarely says his name in public addresses, but he did a few times last night. I'll read you one quote. Uh, There's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans, and that is a threat to the country. That's a direct quote from President Biden. Essentially, what he was looking at doing was to try to draw a distinction between Democrats, between moderate Republicans, and put on the other side of that what he calls so-called MAGA Republicans, and frame those MAGA Republicans as a threat to democracy and try to say to the American people that the midterms will be a battle for the soul of democracy and that you've got to vote against this group of so-called, again, MAGA Republicans. He said that phrase a lot last night. It was a dominant theme in the speech. You could hear some hecklers uh, during that speech. What was the overall reception the president received at Independence Hall last night? Well, uh, on hand at Independence Hall, obviously, it was a it was a crowd in favor of the president. There were some hecklers in the distance. The president, in essence, said they can say whatever they want. It's a democracy. Um, but they weren't in the event. They were on the perimeter. But it, overall, uh, there's been a partisan reception, right? There are Democrats and fans of the president who say that this was a necessary speech about the need to preserve democracy and that democracy is currently under threat, which is something that a Gallup poll showed 60% of Americans of both parties believe that democracy is in peril. Now, what they view as being in peril of democracy, that's a different question. But for Republicans, obviously, there was swift condemnation of this speech. They said that it was a purely political speech and that it was done via the mechanisms of the president, right? It was billed as an official address from the president. There were dress Marines in uniform behind the president as he gave this address. But Republicans say, look, this was 
was a divisive speech. It was a political speech, and it was done under the auspices of the White House. So that's some of the criticism coming in um, this morning. Thanks, Jay, for recapping that for us. That is ABC's Jay O'Brien in Washington on the Northwest News Line. And that's Tom Hutler. Now, earlier in the week, the president was pushing public safety. Mr. Biden called for tougher federal gun laws and more money for good policing. Elisa Jaffe gets more on the president's plan from, once again, ABC's Jay O'Brien. President Biden's rolling out his new Safer America program today as mass shootings and crime rates are on the rise. And he says he created the plan with kids and parents in mind. And they just want to feel safe again. They want to feel a sense of security. And that's what my crime plan is all about. Jay, tell us about the specifics of this plan. Well, first, it's worth pointing out the overall theme of the plan that you've heard the president say before, but he said it again in today's speech in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania, is fund the police, do not defund the police. We've heard that line repeatedly from White House officials and from the president. He said it again today. When it comes to public safety in this nation, the answer is not defund the police. It's fund the police. Now, the finer points of this plan are that it will fund an extra 100,000 officers nationwide. It will fund crime prevention programs. Obviously, a lot of that has to still go through Congress. But another part of today's remarks from the president was a call, a renewed call, for another assault weapons ban. Obviously, President Biden was instrumental in the first assault weapons ban, but he made passionate calls today for it to be renewed. In fact, at one point in the speech, his voice gets loud. He starts Starts shouting, not at anyone in particular, but at the damage that rounds from an assault weapon can do, particularly on the body of a child, as we saw in places like Uvalde. The president getting very passionate about that, again, calling for an assault weapons ban, but whether or not he has the political capital and support to get something like that done, that is still an open question. I'm determined to ban assault weapons in this country. Determined. I did it once before, and I'll do it again. What are the odds? Well, on an assault weapons ban, it looks unlikely in the current makeup of Washington, D.C., particularly as it relates to the midterms, right? If Democrats lose one or both houses of Congress in the upcoming midterms, the chances get even slimmer. But there is another clock that's put on the Safer America plan. This is the funding the police plan that we were just talking about. The president has to get that potentially across the goal line in the near future if Democrats do genuinely lose the House, perhaps, coming up in November. Now, is there enough progressive Democrat support in the House to get that plan through? That is another open question, whether or not the president can get the party together to push this across the goal line as a pretty signature agenda item for American families going into those midterms. Was some of that an attack on Republicans who were calling to defund the FBI after the raid on Mar-a-Lago, Trump's estate? Exactly right. And that was another large portion of the speech towards the end. He talked about January 6th first. And he drew a line, the president did, attempting to say that Republicans who didn't condemn the actions on January 6th, the president saying that you can't support police and also let actions against law enforcement like the kind that we saw on January 6th stand. He got very passionate about that part as well and got a couple of applause lines within that portion of the speech. And then he segued, as you mentioned, to attacks on the FBI in the wake of the raid 
made on Mar-a-Lago. Uh, the phrase defund the FBI was first seen uh, from Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia, but it was adopted in some conservative circles. And the president calling attacks on the FBI, obviously, unfounded. And we've seen a pretty steady increase in drumbeat of attacks against federal agencies in the wake of the Mar-a-Lago search. So President Biden, again, trying to draw a line of distinction between what he says Democrats support and what he says extreme, uh, as the White House puts it, extreme MAGA Republican support. That's ABC's Jay O'Brien with Elisa Jaffe. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, just how much legal trouble is former President Donald Trump in? We'll get the latest on what the FBI found during that raid of Mar-a-Lago when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. The Justice Department this past week responded to former President Trump's call for a special master to review materials the FBI seized from his Mar-a-Lago estate. Mr. Trump's lawyers have said the review is needed to deal with matters that they argue are covered by executive or attorney-client privilege. But in their 36-page filing, top DOG officials laid out in extraordinary detail their efforts to obtain highly classified records they allege were improperly stored at Mr. Trump's Mar-a-Lago home. Joining me now is ABC News legal analyst Royal Oaks. There's a lot to unpack here, but uh, first let's talk about this idea of a, of a special master. What is that, and why did the uh, DOJ have to respond? Well, when somebody uh, hands over documents uh, as a result of a search warrant, the question arises, well, okay, the government's got the documents they wanted, but really are they entitled to all of them? They got maybe a dozen or two dozen boxes. What if a box or two is strictly per Privilege, just right between Donald Trump and his lawyer or executive privilege stuff. In that event, somebody has to sift through it and, and tell the judge presiding, OK, Your Honor, uh, most of it's OK, but here is a box or two or here are some documents that are privileged. Now, normally you have Department of Justice lawyers who are part of the filter team. They aren't really going to try to prosecute Trump down the road. They're just going to look for privileged information and report that to the court. And then other prosecutors go after him. What Donald Trump is saying is, I don't trust these DOJ lawyers uh, anymore, and I can throw them. I want a special master, meaning a retired judge, to be appointed to sift through the two dozen boxes and let that neutral retired judge decide what should be returned to Donald Trump. So after all that, what did the FBI find? What did they have come out of that Mar-a-Lago raid? Well, interestingly, we we have a really good picture of what they uh, got because they gave us a picture. It's been all over cable news. It's a photograph of a bunch of documents uh, strewn about uh, a rug at Mar-a-Lago, and including a Time magazine framed cover, but more importantly, documents with red stripes that say top secret. And so that's the government's way of conveying that, yeah, among the two dozen boxes, we had some really highly classified top secret stuff. And of course, the argument is that Donald Trump obstructed justice because uh, Trump got a grand jury subpoena in May saying, please, Mr. Former President, hand over the following categories of documents. He did produce a bunch of stuff in June. But on August 8, after the government was convinced he wasn't totally forthcoming, they got a lot more documents. And now to the extent the government can show, hey, look at what we got in August. He told us in June he'd produced everything, and that was a lie. That amounts to obstruction of justice. How much legal trouble then is the former president in here? Well, he could be in legal trouble because of the obstruction, but that seems kind of like a legal sideshow because the underlying offense really is, did he violate the Espionage Act? Did he violate federal law decisions? 
because you may not take sensitive documents away when you leave the office of the presidency. And most importantly, probably in the minds of most Americans, did he put lives at risk? Uh, They were talking about human assets. The suggestion is, you know, the names of our spies were somehow filtered there into the documents that Trump took. Could that have repercussions uh, that could injure them or our national security? That ultimately, I think, is going to be the real heart of the matter in terms of allegations against Trump. Do we know if any of that was in the documents that was seized in Mar-a-Lago in that August 8th raid? Well, the implication is, yes, uh, the affidavit, the heavily redacted brief that was signed by the FBI that justified the search warrant that convinced the federal magistrate judge to give the green light to the search warrant, that affidavit, we don't know exactly what was in it because a good chunk of it is blacked out or redacted. But the implication of the language in that affidavit is that, yes, the government believes the human assets were at risk. But at this point, we don't really know if that's true or not. So how did the FBI learn of all of this? Was it from what Mr. Trump provided them back in June and realized, oh, there's more stuff here than than we think. What we've heard is the suggestion that there was a mole, that somebody working on the Trump staff there at Mar-a-Lago tipped off somebody inside the federal government that, hey, you know, you guys uh, came looking early in the year and then you sent a subpoena and we handed over some documents. Well, you haven't seen the whole picture. You didn't get everything you were entitled to. That is the implication of some of the uh, statements by the government. And that's been uh, some of the reporting by major media media outlets to suggest that, yeah, there's a mole in Trump world. So what kind of trouble could the former president get into with this idea of violating the Espionage Act? I mean, what what exactly is the allegation here other than mishandling classified information? Well, that's essentially it. The, there are three allegations against him. One, he violated the Espionage Act, which says you cannot take uh, sensitive documents uh, outside of Washington. Secondly, obstruction of justice, basically stonewalling and not handing over what you have. And third, wrongful destruction of official documents. How much trouble could he be in? Uh, there could be fines. There could be jail time. You know, really does the government want to go that route. Theoretically, if certain really serious uh, offenses are established, uh, theoretically, a person could be barred from running for federal office again. That, however, is a process that would have to uh, be blessed by the courts. It could be challenged in various contexts. The Congress might get involved. So at this point, yeah, the storm clouds are gathering for Donald Trump, but we really don't know if there's going to be a tsunami coming down on his head. Uh, We're just going to have to wait to know how this is going to unfold. This has got to be a very precarious position for the attorney general in Merrick Garland because the Department of Justice is supposed to be independent, but a lot of this is, is very political. Well, that's right. I mean, when you look at this and you say to yourself, okay, what the attorney general is doing is basically trying trying to take out the person that would be Joe Biden's possibly strongest opponent in November 2024. Now, if that person is a really bad guy, of course, you've got to do your job. But you know, the the great uh, middle of America, the centrists are going to be asking themselves, is this politically motivated? And for that, you know, we just have to find out how bad things look for Donald Trump. I mean, essentially, it's the old story. If you're going to kill the king, you better uh, and you're shooting, you better not miss because you're in big trouble if you miss. 
And so in a way, the attorney general is in an analogous situation. If he's going to go after Trump in an unprecedented way by this raid, then he better have the goods when the dust settles or else it's going to look political and it's going to make Trump look like a martyr and make him maybe an even stronger opponent for Biden than he would have been but for the raid. And what's been the response from Trump world? Well, of course, the the, uh, the standard witch hunt uh, line, uh, they're focusing, focusing, interestingly, more on this special master, hey, I want my privilege stuff back than they are the underlying substance of, you know, whether or not there was a violation of the Espionage Act. So, uh, of course, denial, uh, but we really don't know the full picture yet. Are we ever going to know what's in those documents? Well, we really should, because these uh, proceedings uh, being part of a a public criminal matter uh, are secret for now because the Department of Justice can say, hey, we don't want to compromise an ongoing investigation. Uh, And uh, eventually, if if it involved the nuclear codes, of course, we're not going to see that. But short of something that's ultra sensitive, yeah, we should get a very good idea down the road when when the dust settles as to what it is that Donald Trump took and whether he appears to be guilty of a a violation of law for doing it. So what are you expecting to happen next? Well, the next step is for the judge in the civil suit filed by Trump in federal court in Florida to decide whether or not a special master should be appointed to sort out the privileged stuff. Once that's done, then the question is going to be, does the attorney general feel that he has the goods on Donald Trump to the point where an indictment uh, should be recommended, a grand jury should be asked to vote on whether to indict Trump or his associates for a crime. So uh, big things are are, going to be happening in the next few weeks or months, but uh, nothing super important probably in the next week or so. All right, Royal Oaks, ABC News legal analyst, thank you so much for your time and insight. You bet. We have to take another quick break, but coming up is American federalism on the decline. We'll talk with one local professor who says our system of governance is teetering on the edge when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Question for you. Are the states truly the laboratories of democracy? Well, former Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis coined that phrase decades ago in a dispute over ice deliveries, of all things. But as we've chronicled so much on this show, American politics have become more and more polarized and less and less about serving the people. One researcher that's been studying this phenomenon is Jake Grumbach at the University of Washington. In his new book, Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transform State Politics, he makes the case American federalism is in grave danger. So let's begin with that thesis, Jake. Why do you think state governments are in trouble? So first, uh, you said it brilliantly. So Louis Brandeis comes after a long tradition of support for American federalism. And what that means is federalism is a system where there's at least two levels of government that have separate authority over policy and law. So in the U.S., that's the national government in Washington, D.C., as well as the 50 state governments. And there's a number of other countries with federal systems around the world with multi-level governance. But the U.S. has an especially uh, sort of extreme and decentralized form that puts uh, democratic institutions like election administration and voting policy as well as legislative districting and election certification and vote counting, all at the state level. And what we're seeing now over the past couple of decades, and especially over the last 10 years, is democratic backsliding in some states, with some states really restricting access to voting, making their 
legislative districts for the U.S. House and state legislatures more biased in favor of one party over the other and threatening to potentially subvert even a presidential election by giving electoral college votes to a presidential candidate that may not win the votes uh, from the electorate of those states. Well, we'll get to the 2020 election and the debate over that here in just a moment. But you bring up gerrymandering. That's a big problem as more and more politicians tend to select their voters rather than the voters selecting their politicians. But this isn't anything really new, is it? So great point, Jeff. So uh, gerrymandering has uh, is the practice of drawing legislative districts to benefit politicians or change sort of uh uh, the outcomes of, uh, of elections. So over American history, there's been long-term racial gerrymandering, especially in the you know segregated Jim Crow South. The Democratic Party was a leading racial gerrymanderer trying to draw districts to make sure Black Americans wouldn't be able to elect their preferred legislators and making the votes of uh, more rural white communities more uh, uh, influential over election outcomes in those states. But what we've seen in the post-civil rights era is that districts got much more fair and balanced. But then over the past 20 years, and especially in the 2010 redistricting cycle after the 2010 census, is that there was a new form of partisan gerrymandering that wasn't explicitly racial, like the Jim Crow gerrymanders of the past, but is about favoring one party over the other, ensuring that uh, minorities of the electorate, so potentially 30 or 40 percent of the electorate can set the legislative majority in the states. And that's really crucial. That means that minority of voters has a lot of sway in setting the state legislative majority. And that uh, really weakens the link between the mass public ordinary American constituents and what policies get enacted. So we're seeing that right now after the Supreme Court Dobbs decision on abortion is that some states with heavily gerrymandered legislatures are banning abortion, even though majorities of Americans in those states don't want that to happen. Now, we chronicled the idea of minority rule in, in a special we did uh, a couple of years ago. But, you know, you talk about gerrymandering and a minority kind of controlling things rather than a majority. I, I think a good example of that is probably Wisconsin. I mean, certainly they have a lot of gerrymandered districts there. You had the fight over the new Democratic governor that was coming in and, and the Republican legislature curtailing their powers. I mean, it, it's it's really gotten kind of dirty politics at, at the local and state levels. That's right. So states like Wisconsin and North Carolina, I don't say this lightly, they set new mathematical records in terms of partisan gerrymandering. So basically the fewest number of votes you need across the state to set a legislative majority for a party that you've ever had. Um, and what that really did was empower those state legislatures to pass really dramatic policy changes over the 2010s. So I just mentioned uh, new abortion bans coming down the pipe, but also before that, there were restrictions on labor unions that were really important in those states, uh, as well as uh, big changes on economic and social policies across the board. So that's really crucial. And that's in contrast to other states that have been really drawing pretty fair districts and have bipartisan commissions to draw fair districts that have competitive seats for both parties. So it's the voters of the states that determine who's in the legislature rather than the legislators selecting their voters. 
So how do you fix this problem? Because I know the United States Supreme Court, which has its own political issues, is taking up the gerrymandering case uh, coming up in this next term. That's right. So overall, I'd summarize it that the Supreme Court does uh, block many racial gerrymanders, those old school Jim Crow gerrymanders. Uh, There were a series of uh, Supreme Court decisions in the civil rights era that said racial gerrymandering is illegal and there must be really a policy of one person, one vote should be happen across the board. But the Supreme Court has not been as aggressive on partisan gerrymandering when it's about advantaging one party over the other. So uh, the typically over American history, what has happened is that uh, sometimes uh, the Supreme Court will make a ruling that allows state legislatures to make big changes to democratic institutions. And this allows Uh, state legislatures to threaten democracy. And then Congress decides to step in and stop it and sort of create a level playing field. And they often don't. So right now what you have is Congress has the opportunity to pass a national gerrymandering ban to say if a state draws legislative districts that are, you know, too biased, then they have to redraw them that to be more statistically fair. That's totally possible by Congress, but we haven't seen that yet. So there's a lot of opportunities for Congress and the presidency to get together and write laws that set baseline standards uh, for fair democratic institutions across the states. Now we have to take another commercial break, but we'll have more with University of Washington professor Jake Grumbach when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. Our guest at the moment is Jake Grumbach, University of Washington professor and author of the new book, Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Transformed State Politics. Let's talk about the idea of national parties uh, as, as sort of that subtitle of your book. We're seeing a lot more top-down policies from, say, the Republican National Committee or the Democratic National Committee that local politicians are swallowing hook, line, and sinker. That's right. So, you know, going back to Louis Brandeis as you open this segment, uh, you know, the belief in decentralized federalism that the states and, by extension, cities and localities should have a lot of authority over you know, the national government. One was that these state governments are closer to the constituents on the ground. They're not like the, you know, you might hear an ad. I'm not like the distant fat cats in D.C. that don't know your what's going on in your life back home. But what we've seen now over the past generation or so, but again, really kicking into high gear over the past 20 years, is that the parties have really nationalized across the board. So now if you're a Democrat, Uh, really, regardless of what part of the country you come from, or regardless of whether you're a local or a state or a national uh, Democratic politician, you're going to have a similar policy agenda and be part of the same team pulling in the same direction. And that's the same for the Republican Party. That comes after, uh, you know, really major investments by national groups on uh, really all sides of the political spectrum to really make uh, two coherent national parties. And this is very different than the mid 20th century, where the Democratic Party especially was so decentralized that you had the segregationist Democratic South 
in uh, uh, the Jim Crow South, but in the North and uh, West and East Coast, you had civil rights and, you know, pro-labor Democrats that were all in the same national party. So that meant state parties were very important. And a Democrat from Illinois and, or New York or Washington state was very different than a Democrat from Mississippi or Alabama. But now that is no longer true. So this makes a lot of those benefits of having a decentralized federalist system really sort of wash away. And now I think we'd be a little bit better off if more of uh, the policy authority went through Congress and the national government, where people are really able, voters are able to pay attention to what's going on. Everybody knows how to vote in national elections these days. Media coverage is highly national. We don't know as much of what's going on at the state and local level. But what happens is that now the parties at all levels are very coordinated. Uh, so what that all means is a lot of those old school benefits of federalism no longer apply in this era of nationalized politics. Not only with the nationalized politics, but the, the nationalized parties have really kind of ousted people that don't necessarily buy into every plank of the platform. A perfect example of that would be Liz Cheney in Wyoming or even Jamie Herrera Butler here in this state for opposing Donald Trump. That's exactly right. So this is how we're witnessing over these stretches of time, the parties become more coordinated and nationalized. And that often happens in primary elections, just as you suggested, is that primary elections tend to uh, involve voters who are uh, more invested and more uh, affiliated with the parties, uh, more activist in nature, and they're ready to kick out members of the party that don't have the party line on every issue. So we saw that for the Republican Party in the early 2010s when it came to the Tea Party and immigration policy, where the old school sort of, you know, agribusiness immigration moderate Republicans who liked having immigrant labor to work in, you know, meatpacking plants and domestic labor and ranching and so forth. They got ousted from the Republican Party and it became a coherently anti-immigration party over the past decade or so. So we're witnessing that also with respect to democratic institutions themselves, where Republicans who are not on board with the sort of stop the steal train of 2020 are being ousted from the party. And that actually uh, goes beyond simply national parties like we've been talking about, that actually threatens democracy itself in the U.S. So with regards to the 2020 election and how the big lie that's been perpetrated by Donald Trump and his allies, how do you even combat this when when people don't even agree on facts anymore? So that part is uh, very tough. But overall, we've seen this, you know, throughout world history when societies that are democracies uh, backslide into forms of authoritarianism, whether it's in Europe or Latin America or East Asia and elsewhere, what we often see is it's the politicians and political elites. They uh, really have the freedom to make democracy continue or to threaten democracy. And that's sadly because ordinary voters, we don't care all that much about institutions or rules of the game. We care about outcomes and, you know, preferred policies. So most people, this is not, you know, nobody in this story is some sort of saint, but what's happened is the Republican Party politicians have seen that they can stand to really gain, uh, gain power, uh, 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 gain victories in elections 
by restricting access to voting and drawing more biased legislative districts. Um, the Democratic Party doesn't see the same types of advantages for itself in doing the same thing. So in democratically controlled states, you've actually seen some expansions of access to voting. So Washington State and Colorado are two leaders in my statistical analysis of access to voting and the fair drawing of legislative districts uh, during the time they were controlled by Democrats in recent years. But again, this is not because there's some sort of internal, you know, moral goodness of any particular party, but uh, it's really up to elites to maintain democratic institutions because ordinary voters are not going to, you know, except in very rare occurrences like the civil rights movement, are not going to uh, uh, get activated enough to protect democracy on their own without the help of political leaders. This may change and we may see a, uh, you know, really uh uh, invigorated uprising of Americans who want to protect democracy uh, over the coming years, but that remains to be seen. All right, we'll have to leave it there. University of Washington professor Jake Grumbach and the author of the book Laboratories Against Democracy, How National Parties Have Transformed State Politics. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Now we have to take another quick break, but when we come back, remembering Mikhail Gorbachev, the final leader of the Soviet Union, when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Finally this week, Mikhail Gorbachev died on Tuesday at the age of 91. Christian Carl, opinions editor at the Washington Post, spoke with Taylor Van Sice about Gorbachev's legacy. Christian, as I understand it, you were based in Moscow in the early 2000s and in Germany for a number of years before and after the fall of the Soviet Union. After that Christmas 91 resignation, what was Gorbachev doing in the aftermath? Well, he was trying to keep himself uh, a prominent figure in Russian political life, which was hard because, of course, Boris Yeltsin, who uh, rose to power largely because of Mikhail Gorbachev, became Russian president and dominated the political scene until his successor, Vladimir Putin, came on at the end of the 1990s. And within Russia, Gorbachev's legacy is viewed with a great deal of mixed feelings. He's not actually very popular, I would say, among most Russians. So through most of the 1990s, he ended up being largely forgotten. And I think a lot of Russians didn't want to hear anything from him at all. That's so interesting, because from the Western point of view, Gorbachev is kind of lauded as, a, as almost a hero, or at least a peacemaker. Well, that's exactly right. I was actually in Berlin when the Berlin Wall fell, and I've rarely seen such adoration of a political figure as I saw among Germans for Mikhail Gorbachev. I mean, after the Berlin Wall came down, he was an absolute hero in Germany, and he was feted all over Europe. And it was kind of ironic, because when you were in Russia in the 1990s, people tended to speak of him with sometimes open disdain. I remember one older woman telling me that uh, in no uncertain terms, that he should be that Mikhail Gorbachev should be stood up against a wall and shot. In the last day or so, we've been hearing some archived audio from the years after the Soviet Union dissolved, and Gorbachev almost sounded disappointed with the focus that Western nations put on victory uh, in the Cold War instead of peace. What were his hopes following the fall of the Berlin Wall? Well, I think he very much hoped that a revitalized Soviet Union would take its place among the community of nations um, and, you know, be regarded as an equal partner by the countries of the West. But then, of course, very much because of his reforms, which had the 
effect entirely opposite to what he intended, the Soviet Union fell apart. And its place was taken by Russia and by a whole group of new countries, most of which didn't want to hear anything about Mikhail Gorbachev and didn't want to be associated with Russia particularly closely. I think that he was very disappointed by that. Uh, I think he was disappointed by the rise of uh, a very nationalistic and assertive Russia towards the end of the 1990s and the early 2000s. Um, He often expressed criticism of NATO enlargement, even though under him, I think NATO was on its way to finding a very constructive and positive relationship with uh, the new Russia and the new new Eastern Europe. But um, like many other Russians, he saw NATO enlargement as a threat, as a betrayal. Are the actions of Mikhail Gorbachev in the 1990s motivating in any way Vladimir Putin's current trajectory as the current leader of Russia and and his goals in Eastern Europe? Oh, absolutely. I think you can define Putin as the anti-Gorbachev. Don't never forget when uh, Putin became Russian president, he said at one point that the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the 20th century, which is quite a quite an amazing thing to say. And of course, the collapse of the Soviet Union was very much the achievement, again, probably not intended or desired, of Mikhail Gorbachev. So when Putin um, issued a statement yesterday about Gorbachev's death, it was very neutral and praised him as a great leader. But it's quite clear that um, Putin decided on a very different trajectory for Russia. Gorbachev was not very happy with the way that Putin um, was negating Gorbachev's own achievements and and putting Russia in a much more aggressive role on the world stage. Christian Carl with us on Northwest News Radio, opinions editor for the Washington Post, and you can find Christian's coverage online at WashingtonPost.com. Christian, thank you. Thank you so much. And that will do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogela. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.